0: Yeah.
1: Another brand new episode of the Brothers Trek About Discovery. My name is Matt, as always, and coming to you from the eastern side of the state in Houston. My brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. Well, here we are talking about the uh, episode four: The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Mighty long title there, don't you think, sir? It's too big for a file name. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. <laughs> we'll get into the title. We'll, uh, e- My brain locked. Yeah, we'll get into the title later. Let's talk about the title later. We'll skip it for now. Go back to it. You know, before we really start digging in on this whole Star Trek thing like we normally do, just want to uh, take a few moments to talk about how awesome that Star Wars trailer was last night. It's pretty <laughs> great. It's pretty excited. I feel that the uh, level of excitement has grown on it. It looks great. It looks very dark. It looks chilling. It does. I think that there are some um, misdirects in the, in, the, in the video, in the trailer. But I also feel like there are just as many spot on, this is what really is going to be happening in the uh, movie as well.
0: So, you know, Disney has for a long time you know, since they've held the property in their various, uh, you know, production things have really emphasized that to them, the idea that the force was divided between a light side and a good side, between a yin and a yang, yeah, uh, is a misreading, and that really, uh, properly the Jedi should have been maintaining a balance between good and evil, between light and dark, right and the, the fact that they fell away yeah the fact that they fell away and became strictly orthodox to the light side was a failing and of course this contradicts lucas's original you know thinking that you know people who were good and generous and kind were happy people and people hmm. who were selfish and bad and mean were unhappy people and you know from what Lucas was doing, making movies for kids, you know, there was a certain didactic element there about, you know, how to be a good person. Right. And, you know, certainly you could do things with kids, you know, by, for example, telling them that, uh, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. You know, hate is the path of the dark side. Yeah. And, you know, suggest to them that, you know, getting angry and fighting on the playground or fighting with your siblings was unproductive behavior and bad. And of course, as Disney moves to this new interpretation, and by new, I mean, it's years old now that, you know, the gray is the proper approach. Uh, Star Wars loses some of its didactic appeal in terms of let's educate our kids into like how to be good people Mm -hmm. by emulating our heroes from the movies. Let's be like Luke. Let's be like Yoda. Let's be like Obi-Wan. Instead, you're like, well, I guess the real, you know, Thing here is that I should kind of combine my good and my bad, my dark and my light, and you know screw these people over here, but then you know help out these people. I'll be a Robin Hood and I'll, you know, steal from this group and aid this group, and it loses its, its a you know appeal in that sense as uh, models, heroes, ideals to look up to. And I think Lucas was really interested in creating kind of clear heroes. Mm -hmm. You know, Han was the ambiguous character but obi-wan and luke were not supposed to be ambiguous i don't think leia was supposed to be ambiguous han was the bad boy and in in the original version you know in episode four he's kind of like a ride-along and he really became popular with the fans so you know much to harrison ford's dismay he became a, a character that became essential right and probably lucas's in some respects, yeah, yeah. So. I think so. So, uh, how do you feel about the new Disney interpretation of moving to the gray? It makes for better. You can see why this would make better story potential. Yes, because you can make these ambiguous, dark stories,
1: and well, again, it will end up being interesting to see where it goes. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I've sort of been riding on the theory all along that the end of Jedi is we we find that Luke has to use both the dark and the light to get to the point where he you know finishes finishes where he's at right cuz he's like he's slamming you know his lightsaber on on, on Vader's you know arm yeah. at one point you know and then once he like looks down and realizes oh crap he's he, his arms like my arm uh, what am i doing blah 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 i'm going to turn into this so then he throws away the lightsaber and he's like you know what no i am a jedi like my father before me so, I guess it depends on what Luke has learned at that point, right? Right. So, going into this, I've already seen a lot of on- online speculation that perhaps what we're leading towards is is Luke sending Rey away through on her own path to find, you know, to find how to be the proper force user right you know maybe right. the, maybe it's on purpose maybe it's on accident that remains to be seen and so her teaming up with kylo becomes then the gray because we have the dark and the light and so the two of them going off and doing whatever maybe at the end of the movie into episode you know nine could be that so yeah. i don't know we'll see the
0: thing about anti-heroes and you know anti-heroes are the became the big you know, Vogue in the nineties. They are in a lot of ways more fun to watch,
1: but less appealing to identify with. It's like uh, Walter White, you know, on Breaking Bad, where, you know Yeah. You sorta of, at the beginning you're sort of like on his side and then you're like, what do you you know, but then you just keep watching him get darker and darker and you're like, Walter, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know. Right. You're still sorta of rooting for him, but you're also like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. And you feel bad for rooting for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, some of these shows really get into the dark. You know, you can feel, you know, kind of, you know, mentally exhausted by watching them. Yeah. And so I'm going to loop this around back to Star Trek. And, you know, we have some of these rules, some of these principles about how, you know, should Star Trek characters, or at least officers in Starfleet, Obviously, your miners and your your rogue hustlers, and these guys can can be in the gray. But should Starfleet officers always you know be the go- the good, the bold you know the bold, the the true, We have Roddenberry's rule that Starfleet officers wouldn't fight amongst themselves, which of course saps the drama, but emphasizes like if this is really a team that's well functioning, you know you expect them to be focused on outward fighting not inward fighting and then you have these characters like you know Lorca, obviously but also uh you know his chief of security landry who has a dramatic turn of events this episode certainly And, and even michael burnham who i think you could still really argue is on the side of the light you know who's moved to mutiny was in a sense you know an attempt to save the crew from itself right you know so what she attempted to do by firing on the klingons while it violated a lot of kind of starfleet rules a Starfleet approach to the problem starfleet doesn't you know fire first you know if that's what you need to do to the klingons to to you know tell them uh we're totally ready to defend ourselves i mean you know don't think for a moment that we're not, and in a sense, because we got to see the Klingon side of things, and what did he say with the most contempt was, you know these are the people who say they come in peace mm-hmm. you know it it really lends something to the idea that had you know Burnham been able to shoot first and say, you know you're in and then followed up with the you know the hail that says, "You're in Federation of space, get the hell out, yeah. It's more where this came from, buddy. The uh, the Klingons might have gone, hmm, you know, in, this, in the way that we're told that they responded to the Vulcans.
1: Yeah.
0: With a little more respect. And so, you know, that's a kind of a thing where, you know, when you shoot first because your goal is long-term peace as opposed to, I'm going to shoot first because I want to kill as many people as I can or because I want to create a bunch of mayhem or because I want the body count to be super high. You know, Burnham's goal was still peace. It was just through superior firepower rather than
1: Mm
0: -hmm. through more traditional Starfleet, you know, diplomacy and talking and negotiation.
1: Well, if Star Trek has taught us one thing over the years, it's that based on their uniforms, Star Trek is anything but gray. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh well that was kind of what i wanted to talk about in the behind the scenes i will uh get into a little bit of bio just because uh we seem to be doing one an episode so let's keep it going uh, this week i wanted to talk about anthony rapp right our uh engineer stamets he's a pretty cool guy i like him he's fun uh of course the first time i knew him was adventures in babysitting he was awesome in that movie with uh, elizabeth Ooh. Shue. And then who was he
0: in that uh, movie?
1: He was the he was the redheaded kid who uh He's you know, one of the kids. Yeah, yeah, who kept saying you think. And then of course he was in the original cast of Rent as Mark. He reprised that same role in the movie, of course. You know, he's a guy who's got some cool credits to his background. He's got a total of 41. He's not quite as uh doesn't have quite as many as uh Jason Isaacs, but He, uh, you know, he's got some X-Files on there, some psychs, some Law and Order SVU. He was also in the movies A Beautiful Mind and Dazed and Confused. So he's uh, definitely another one of those actors with an awesome pedigree behind him. So I guess uh, after all that, let's get to it as always. Captain's log starting. It's five-year mission. So as we start, we got some uh, lightning going on. Wait, what is this? Is this in space? No, maybe this is like in a planet. You know, you got what else is this? You're suddenly hearing thunder. Are we traveling through? Is this the is this the video from the Genesis Project? What what is going on here? Oh, turns out it's just a replicator here. Although this they is a little bit of Genesis going on. Yeah, here. well, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. So uh, replicator, the they have synthesized a new suit for uh, or a new uniform. For Burnham there, she's got her silver uh, stripes on and everything. However, she's still not given a rank.
0: Yeah, so she's in the science division.
1: Yep. And we hear that she's... Uh, a little bit later, we hear that she was... She did have some engineering, but that she also had biochemistry?
0: Yeah, well, she, had, she has a lot of science. Yes. So, yeah. I, if I recall correctly, her background is in um, kind of a xenoanthropology there you go so that's her biological science and then she studied like particle physics or you know some kind of uh a high level of physics at the vulcan Vulcan science Academy. academy yeah yeah so she's she's got both the physics and the biology
1: piece which is kind of perfect for this uh mushroom driver or whatever they call it yeah exactly so uh, she's looking at herself in a mirror. She's kind of checking out. She, you know, touches the sh- she touches her uh, chest where she has no rank insignia on. No badge, yeah. No badge, exactly. Uh, and then uh, Tilly comes in and she turns off turns off the mirror, which is just a hologram of her. So I thought that was kind of a neat idea. You are truly seeing how somebody else sees you. <laughs> so Tilly walks in. She's got a package with her. Turns out it's some kind of uh, secure package, like a duffel bag, a secure duffel hard bag or something. With the uh, last will and testament of uh, Captain Giorgio. Burnham decides that she can't look at that right now, and she just slides the duffel bag under her cot. But it just keeps pinging. I keep wondering, how is she going to sleep with that thing if it just keeps pinging all night long? She must not be a light sleeper.
0: <laughs> uh, well there is the snoring going on right yeah
1: well that's true that's true she's got the snoring going on next to her uh but just at the last second burnham gets calmed to the bridge probably much to her relief so she heads that way and just happens to get into the elevator with saru weird
0: <laughs> an unhappy saru an
1: unhappy saru because he does not look like he's expecting to see her at all that's and what here i
0: she's she's no longer in the prison right? uniform now she's in a ship's uniform
1: Yes, if the captain would have asked me, I would have told him that uh, we didn't have any room for a mutineer.
0: So, it, it's funny. He So, he he starts off the episode by, by saying this, right? Mm-hmm. I, I would have said there's no room for a mutineer. And then, you know, you do have a little perspective arc for him because by the end of the episode, he's like, no, I was wrong. You're going to fit in quite nicely on this ship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because... You know, a, a, after she goes through the whole pretending to Well, I mean, it's not that she was pretending to apologize. She was just doing it for the purpose of conducting a, the experiment. Yes, exactly. It may have been sincere, but the fact that it was tied into this very practical... Uh, I just needed to conduct this experiment. Yeah. He, you know, he totally sees the captain's deviousness and manipulation
1: here. So uh, these, uh, she says, I can tell by your threat, Ganglia, that you weren't consulted, so we have the the official name for those in the uh, in the show. Saru says, well, the captain keeps his own counsel. <laughs> Again, this tells us more and more about Lorca. We keep gathering this information about what a, uh, you know, what kind of guy this guy is.
0: I think we also see something about Saru here. Or not, you know, like, specifically in this scene, but you know why would Saru get put on this ship,
1: Uh-huh.
0: right? And they talk about this a little bit in After Trek, and I, I like the idea that he he's a guy who follows orders. Yeah, he's not a guy who is going to break out, and, uh, you know. Especially if because you know the, the fact that Lorca has picked Michael Burnham suggests that he's not totally, you know, about everyone following orders. He, he, you know,
1: but probably from his number one, he's gonna want somebody who follows orders. Well,
0: I think it, it, it'd be he if he could pick his number one, it, it, he might have picked someone a little bit different. Because what he likes about Burnham is the out of the box thinking and the goal oriented thinking. True, and not necessarily the rule following. Right. This is the whole meaning of the third episode. Context is for kings. Yeah. And it, when you find someone who's <laughs> like that, so. I will introduce our first uh, Myers-Briggs uh, analysis here. Hit one of the problems that a using um you know Kiersey's uh, four types the rational, the artisan, uh the idealist and the guardian. One of the things that will bother a irrational about guardians cuz they're they're both uh, J's. A lot of them are about you know a lot of half the guardians are TJs, right? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So one of the things that will bother the rational about the guardian is that the rational starts with the goal and then we'll develop some, you know, secondary goals and from then we'll work down to procedures. Here's how I'm going to achieve my goal. So for example, at the hotel where I work, I start with Uh what is the purpose of the hotel? Make money. How are we going to do that? Happy guests. And, you know, properly handling payment, right? And from that, you know, we're gonna look at the happy guests. How do we get happy guests? You know, there's the, you know, what does good customer service look like? What does, you know, the, how is the hotel meeting its its obligations? And so you work your way down to procedures, right? And the guardian starts with procedures and works their way up and, and often never gets to the goals. So I know people who, they have to have a procedure. You can't explain why you're doing something to them. You have to explain the procedure. And then they're going to follow the procedure, even if it doesn't make sense in this particular context. Mm -hmm. Right? And so I think what what Lorca is looking for, he's probably irrational. If you, you know, so we've got the Kiersey, I've mentioned that. We've got the same four types going all the way back to the ancients. So Aristotle's description of the four types, when he talks about the rational, he says they're they're vulnerable to become to becoming cunning knaves, which I think would be a good description of Lorca, right? Right. He's smart, he's cunning, but he's he's breaking the rules. He's doing things uh, that are improper. Now his goal is to win the war. He may be better behaved if there weren't a war, but you know one of the descriptions that you often find in when talking about various types of rationals. Like one of my favorite uh, is looking at rationals, how, how do they deal with rules? Uh-huh. And you know, oftentimes, the response is, wait, there are rules. You're like, I, I don't <laughs> pay attention to the rules, the rules are irrelevant to me. I'm only focused on the goal. And so you know, things like So we've got lots of rules at the hotel, for example, about, like, you know, can taxis park where the guests park? Um, What time do we lock doors? What time do we close the pool? If you're totally free free of rules, you know, then you're like, all I'm concerned about is happy guests who are paying their bills, right? So keeping the pool open for another half an hour or letting a, an Uber driver sit there because he's picking up a guest, even though they're not supposed to be there. But look, there's no guests who want to be parked in that space. Who is it harming? So if Lorca could have gotten himself a, a rational, someone who was goal-directed, someone who knew the context was for kings and who made decisions based on the goals that Lorca himself wanted to pursue, I think he would have been happy with a Michael Burnham-type person. As... But since he couldn't get that, He's going to want someone who's going to follow orders. Someone who's going to do what the procedures are. Because one, it's a known quantity. And two, Mm
1: -hmm. his default position is going to do what the captain said. So what you're saying basically is is that Lorca is so goal-oriented that he might not care about breaking a few eggs in the process. Yeah. So they arrive on the bridge, and it looks like all of a sudden we're in battle mode. Two birds of prey are coming at them. Uh, we see Kayla again at navigation, right? The girl with the accoutrement on her uh, face. Uh, I did go back and watch in the first episode. Uh, she's actually, that's the same place where she's at in that episode yep. 12. So. Where she
0: had all of her hair.
1: <clears throat> where she had all of her hair, yeah. It wasn't shaved away or blown away or skinned away or whatever has happened to her.
0: Well, I'm sure she uh, took some kind of injury and they shaved it for like, you know, putting that appliance. Hopefully she'll heal up properly and they can take that off.
1: We'll see, we'll see. So uh, it's been six months already, you know. If they can heal a, uh, a broken nose like uh, that, then, uh, you know, you'd think they'd be able to fix whatever's going on with her. So uh, they blow up one of, the, one of the birds of prey. The second one comes around, and it fires at them, and they all die. Well, they don't quite die. It's just Lorica says that they die, and he gives them all a slow clap, you know. <laughs> nice job. Turns out it's all a battle sim, and they have failed. Uh, He says that we are the only ship to fly anywhere we want to go, and so we have to be battle ready. And when we get there, we're going to be all alone. We'll be ready, says Landry. It's hard to do worse, he says. Which uh, Jamie's like, you know, I really like him. He's sassy. (laughs) So uh, Lorca has Saru Continue, uh, continue with the sims. And uh, Lorca takes Burnham downstairs to his menagerie, which he reveals. I didn't think we'd be seeing that already. Uh, She walks through. She sees bathlets. She sees guns. We see the dissected Tribble still lying there. She says these are some of the most dangerous weapons in the galaxy. He says, I study war. This is where I hone my craft. So now we're not getting information about Lorca from anyone else. We're getting it from himself here. Uh, he then shows her the kitty from episode three. Uh, he wants her to study it. Why is it so tough? How can it kill so fast? How can its hide be, you know, so resistant to blasters and its claws slice through anything? And then he wants her to weaponize it. Dun, dun, dun. Credits. So, back at it. Uh, we're with the Klingons now. We uh, We totally skipped them for an episode, but we're back now. It's been six months since uh, Takuvma's ship has been uh, blown up. The torchbearer, Voke, is still taking care of business on board there. They've been scavenging. The ship is hungry. They've been searching for parts. Apparently, we find out that they ate Captain Juju. Uh, That can't be good for anyone. Scraping the meat from her skull, they says. Uh, We got Laurel, who's been here uh, the whole time. She suggests that they steal the uh, dilithium processor from the Shenzhou. But Valk refuses, saying that Takubo would have resisted assimilation. Uh, but she finally convinces us for the good of the people to go get their weapon or to go get their unit off the Shenzhou. Now, funny story here. This is uh, also care of Jamie. She was looking up today uh, what the Shinzo was. It was their first spacecraft program uh from that the chinese had created and that the name has been translated as either uh divine craft or also magical craft those are the two i thought that was uh some really uh oh magic boat that was the other one it was divine vessel or uh, magic boat i thought those were both uh, awesome so now we know the history of the shinzu um back on discovery we found that uh, Burnham has made her own discovery. <laughs> uh, she tries to tell Landry that the animal uh, was only defending itself. That's what she's trying to tell it. It's like the uh, the telegrade, the uh, microorganism from Earth. So I heard this, and I'm originally thinking, well, maybe that's what happened, right? The, uh, the, the drive had somehow taken a microorganism in some, like, thing of water and had kind of macro-sized it and later we find out that's not what happened. But that's what I thought we were going to get here. Uh, Burnham tries to tell her, uh, tries to drop some Vulcan proverbs on her by saying, it can only be what it is, not what you want it to be. Landry then says she hates Vulcan proverbs. (laughs) Lorca isn't interested in what you are. He is interested in what you can do for him.
0: So what I think is going on here is that ultimately she is the uh, security chief is a, is a guardian
1: who has uh-huh.
0: figured out just um how goal directed lorca is right because that's a correct analysis right the mistake she makes going forward is michael burnham is really concerned with the totality of the goals right we want to win uh-huh. and the fact that she figures out that this creature is key to running the drive is actually you know, one of the things that Lorca was really concerned about in this episode. So, in a sense, she brought him the win. The fact that mm. she did it without weaponizing claws or hides, right, is irrelevant. Because she was focused on the big picture, the ultimate aim, not on all the little steps right. that were laid out for her to follow. And so on the one hand, her name is Landry, right? Yes. Yes. So I think she's figured And this, you know, this happens to me at work, right? Is people realize that I'm not following the rules. I'm not doing things normally. And at some point you've established that you're competent at your job. So the guardians go, leave them alone. They, they don't, either try to imitate me because they're it's, it's a mystery what I'm doing um but they just let me go right oh he's you know it's a black box right and so I think she's figured out that Lorca you know I think that was insightful what she said that he's not concerned about who you are but what you can do but who you are that would be the idealist right right but the fact that she's still trying to follow the steps and, you know, weaponize claws and hides rather than answer the question, what is this and what's it for? and Why was it on the ship? That's a kind of a big mystery. And, you know, she was concerned. And, you know, perhaps Lorca himself was concerned that Vernon would get so curious and, you know, go down some rabbit holes of, of you know, scientific exploration. This is the problem with, with the engineer. With Stamets, right, is that he's so committed to the pure science. So, this is a, a good distinction between, uh, let's say, the, uh, the XT, uh, XNTP, that whether, it's an, whether he's an introverted NTP or an extroverted NTP, introverted intuitive uh, thinking, um, and his learning uh, feature would be. Uh, ps not Js is judging features whereas you know clearly the captain is a j right making decisions making calls being serious so you sometimes get this conflict between let's say intJs and intps in that the intj wants to get something done they're only concerned with actionable results right and the intp is is more concerned with does it make sense in my own head I don't care if it Produces anything or there's a result or we got anything done or anything was built So in a sense he wants to understand the spore drive to understand it, you know, like In his own head, right? That that he's more concerned with the elegance of Producing the, the working spore drive then what can the spore drive do for me? What can the spore drive do for Starfleet? What would this, you know, how would this spore drive be utilized so it's more like a platonic ideal spore drive. And of course, Lorca is the exact opposite, right? He's got a specific you know utility he's looking for this thing looking from this thing that he wants from the thing. And so you know, if you haven't quite figured out whether Burnham is a, let's say a XTP or a NTP or a, a NTJ. Then, I could see where he'd be concerned about her running down some rabbit hole, but she does turn out to be reasonably well focused on solving missions and getting things done and not figuring out the most elegant solution and you know it, it's beautiful, but it's not practical.
1: so uh now now the uh the heart of this episode really starts moving here as we uh, cut to Lorca's uh, ready room where he's uh, standing there at his little pedestal eating, and he gets a call from the uh, admiral, and he's eating. You know, there's no, like, standing at attention, or, hey, let me finish eating my food before I, like, pop her in. No, just, boop, here she is. Hi, admiral, you know, just eating, you know, away. She kind of calls him on this breach of protocol, and he uh, sort of half apologizes about it. But this leads us to Corvan 2 right here we find out that this is where uh, 40% of the dilithium crystals are are mined for the or mined for the federation and that it is now being attacked by those damn stinking klingons subnote here corvan 2 was uh, previously mentioned in the next generation episode uh, new ground which stated that corvan uh was uh on the oh it was on the verge of extinction due to uh, industrial pollu- pollution on that planet uh, matching the information, of course, in this episode, that uh, is a major industrial hub. So kind of funny there that they brought that back. So uh, she, so the Admiral shows uh, Lorca the call for help. She asks if the spore drive is ready. He says, yes, it's ready. I told you I promised you it would be ready when you called, and it's going to be ready. Cut to Stamets saying it's not ready. Stamets uh, tells us that uh, while they've been able to make uh, micro jumps, that bigger jumps are... Uh, they have uh they have less the ability to correctly navigate around the big things that they could crash into right so uh their their navigation can't handle all the variances and possibilities of what could happen so of course then my question is is why not just make a bunch of micro jumps and get all the way there
0: yeah and and they, and they don't even start making micro jumps so that at the point when they finally solve the drive problem the total distance they have to go is shorter
1: yeah it's still shorter yeah.
0: Right nor, nor are they heading off at like warp seven or you know something to again, shorten the distance. They seem to yeah. be Well, well, we don't well they, see do, them...
1: they do they do start warping there, because uh-huh. yeah, I as I watched it twice, and in the second time through, I did notice that he's like, "Well, get us moving at right. least in." so That's yeah. good. Yeah.
0: So, So we have this. We have two situations, right?
1: Okay.
0: And I'll, I'll bring them up now. So we have the captain telling the admiral that the drive is finished. And then we have that thing where he's trying to teach the Klingons a lesson at Corvan where he's just letting the ship get hit so that he can bring the Klingons in closer so that they can destroy each other, presumably, when he disappears. Yep. Does the the hyper jump or whatever. uses this four drive. And it's the... I think both of them suggest that Lorca is a dominant extroverted thinker that the thinking mm-hmm. is happening before the intuition or before his learning process he's making judgments so you know like an INTJ would never say the drive is done unless either the drive was done or like all I have to do is insert this and the drive is done he wouldn't right. do it with, with his chief engineer going, I don't even know how to make it work. It's a mystery, right? That's, that's totally, you know, T.E. dominant. I want it done, make it done, figure it out. I'm not, you know, concerned with the details. And, you know, so I think we can pretty clearly say that uh, Lorca is an ENTJ.
1: All right. Fair enough. They don't have a computer that is big enough that is going to uh, solve all of their, uh, all the variables. Uh, They did find this one piece of tech, though, which kind of looked like a chair at first. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe what they're going to need is like a human brain, right? Like the computer, use its imagination or whatever, sort out the computations. Sadly, again, I was wrong, but that's okay. (laughs) So uh, Stamets agrees to try and uh, extend the jump range without a thank you. Lorca leaves. Cut to the bird of prey jumping in, which was funny. So this is apparently Cole here, who has uh, apparently come to sort of supplement himself and become a part of the unified Klingons. You don't exactly know what's going on at this point with that guy. Um Another thing I found on Memory Alpha here is that uh, this episode reveals that Cole is a member of the House of Kor. In his two appearances to date, Cole has expressed very elitist sentiments, looking down on T'Kuvma for not being a member of the upper aristocracy and various social outcasts like Voke, who T'Kuvma is welcomed into his house. This also appears to be a callback to in DS9, Once More Under the Breach, in which it is explained that Kor himself denied Mortalks' application to the Officer corps because his family were not nobles, but from lowlands in the Ketha province. So
0: that's... So funny how Kor, they... of course, you know, appears in the original series. He comes back, I think, three times in DS9. Uh-huh. So Kor is a
1: storied Klingon. <laughs> Literally. Uh, So uh, we also get uh, at the end of this scene. So I don't really know exactly what happened in this scene, other than... It's sort of, because it just ends with the Klingons chanting, you know, remain Klingon, remain Klingon, and then and that ends. So, Cole basically, like, comes in to, like, sort of say I'm sorry without ever saying I'm sorry, and then, and then that's it. I mean, he's, we find out later that he's kind of there to spy on, you know, what's going on in Takuvma's ship, and he finds out that they have no, um, you know, uh, food, or that they've been really, like, having a hard time, but... I didn't feel like anything else happened in that scene. Am I missing something?
0: I don't think so. I mean, it'd probably benefit from a rewatch. They may have just been really setting up, you know, what's going to happen in the, in the future with other Klingons taking over to operation.
1: Yeah. Well, him coming back and doing it. Yeah. But other than that, I didn't feel like anything else happened in there except for this fake out that, you know, he's going to join the unified front or whatever. Uh-huh. Oh, well. too commercial. Back from commercial, uh, so they uh, attempt to jump, and then this is really cool because we see here the disc, the outer disc of the uh, of the discovery starts spinning, which I thought was really cool. So uh, tensely they jump. There's a moment we don't know what's going to happen, and then suddenly they appear in front of a giant red star. Stamets is uh Stamets is hurt when he uh, the, the ship rocks. Boom! Uh, it's tense for a moment. They're not sure they're going to be able to get out of the gravity well. But then they get out of the gravity well, and everything is fine. Uh, Burnham tries to tell Landry that uh, the, react- the Ripper had reacted to the drive. But again, Landry dismisses it. In sickbay, Stamets is getting all fixed up. His, they're putting his nose back together, which is really nice of him. Lorca arrives looking for an update. Stamets says, time is needed for good science. But Lorca declares that the Discovery is no longer a science vex- vessel. Stem says, hey, I'm gonna leave and I'm gonna take everything with me. But like, no, you're not. This all belongs to Starfleet. I don't even know where you think you're going with all of this stuff. So no. And then uh, he says, What are you gonna do? Are you gonna be a selfish man who puts his ego away to who couldn't put his ego away to save some people? Or you don't want to be known as, you know, somebody big like the Wright brothers or like Elon Musk or like Zefram Cochran. <laughs> It's funny because at this point, you know, uh, we know Zefram Cochran. That's what I was trying to say. You know, uh, <clears throat> from our history of Star Trek, we know who Zefram Cochrane is. So it's not just a random name pulled out, at least this time. It's somebody in the history of Star Trek that we do know.
0: And deep history, because it goes all the way back to the original series. Right, exactly. And then, of course, we'll meet him in, uh, in the movie Insurrection.
1: No, First Contact.
0: Yeah, you're right. First Contact. And then uh, he's apparently still kicking around
1: during uh, Enterprise. During Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lorca doesn't outright convince Stamets to get back to work. In fact, Stamets storms off. So Lorca decides to play over the ship's audio the uh, transmissions of from Corvan 2. Uh, we hear the number of dead are rising. We hear, uh, you know, kids crying, people, little ones looking for their mothers, vice versa. We also hear that uh, Zaphod is dead, which is funny because that's totally a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I enjoyed that. Uh, but we see reactions around from the crew. They're all, you know, feeling it, not, li- not liking it, not enjoying it. And yeah. so... Um, uh, including Landry, who now decides it's time to kill the telegrad that they've got locked up in the in the cell. Burnham smartly is uh, smartly and Vulcany is telling her that they don't have enough information to try and tempt what she's about to attempt, which is you know uh, 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 tranquilize it.
0: Yeah, how is uh, it going to respond to the sedation?
1: Exactly, we don't know. But like a fool, Landry lowers the force field and gets ready to kill it. Except she totally doesn't, because the creature comes galloping out of the hold. Totally not sedated at all. Knocks Burnham out of the way. Landry, uh, it tries to get out. It's clawing at the doorway. Landry's firing and firing and firing, and then it goes after her. And then Burnham smartly turns on the lights, and the telegrade grabs Landry by its mouth and then throws her across the room and then runs back into his little dark hole. Burnham activates the force field. Alexa, activate the force field. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of voice activation going on in this in this series that that they did less of in Next Generation. You know, I feel like this if this was in the Next Generation, it was, somebody would have hit the the door button instead. Right, you right.
0: Know? So, and, and of course, as you suggested, with our you know Alexas and our series and our Cortanas it becomes implausible for people to have to run around flipping switches, pushing buttons in a world in which we are ordering groceries <laughs> by talking right. to our personal devices. Exactly. And so, you know, the show just to, you know, not make it ridiculous in terms of, well, I, how come I can do all this stuff with my device and they're running around pushing buttons or I can't reach the button. I can't do it. Uh, uh, Siri, uh, <laughs> can you uh, yeah exactly turn the lights on?
1: Uh, that would be great. Thanks. So uh, we see Landry lying on the floor; she's not looking too good. They emergency transport to Sickway sick bay. Cut to sick bay. We hear the uh, familiar uh, original series sick bay sounds, which is all fun. Yep. Then we uh, pan pan up Landry, and she's pretty ripped up by the Ripper, and then is pronounced dead. Dun, dun, dun. Lorca tells Burnham to uh, find a use for that creature. Don't let her death be in vain, he says. Cut to the Shinzu. Vok and Lorel are uh, scavenging, trying to find anything useful. Uh, useful. <laughs> Vok's suit, he like... You know, they, they, he does the air pressure thing where he, he gets air going in the room again. And so he takes off his suit and it's like a total Iron Man thing, you know, like the mask disappears and the armor like folds in into the back of the suit somehow. I don't know. So Lorel calls him from engineering saying she's found it. The two have this interesting conversation going on here. Uh, Box kind of says like, hey, why did you not want command? I know you're upset probably that I'm in command. She says, no, I prefer, to be, uh, I prefer to be in second. I don't want command because I can be behind the scenes. You know, do what I like. I can be your enforcer, your advisor, your champion. Sounds very Romulan of her sneaking around behind doing stuff. But anyway, so there seems to be something like romantically brewing between these two. It's like, you know. Yeah, I feel that. Uh, yep. Uh, she says to him, like, the saw something special in you. Kind of the way she says that sort of says something. And then she says the most obvious line in the whole scene, which is, shall we uncouple? (laughs) So I thought, especially between, I mean, the actors, what they were doing, yes, but then even in the writing there, you're like, okay, something is definitely going on here. So uh, kind of planting the seed, basically, for what happens at the very end of the show. Uh, Back on Discovery, Burnham calls Saru into her lab. She, as we've discussed, kind of like apologizes for how she treated him on the Shinzu, and he sort of, you know, is trying to, like, come around to her side again until she notices that his threat ganglia aren't being activated. Fascinating, she says. But now Saru is mad because he sees why he's been called down here, and he doesn't appreciate it, and then says, as you said before, you will fit in perfectly here with Captain Lorca. But she figures out the creature is not aggressive, so she calls in Tilly, who brings in the spores. She tells Tilly, hey, maybe you should leave. I don't want you getting... I don't want Stamets getting upset with you. But she says, no, no. If I help you, then maybe I can help those people too. Burnham lowers the force field. And she places the jar of spores into the hold. The creature kind of walks up. It connects with the, with the spores. And sort of connects with her. Sort of lies one of its like little tentacles on top of her. Almost like a thank you or something. So she takes this info to Stamets, right? She shows, uh, she shows him how, oh, she shows, uh, she shows Stamets how something wanted out of the glen. It wasn't things being knocked in, it was things being knocked out. And how it entered the glen in pursuit of the spores, and that maybe, maybe, the tardigrade can, uh, can help us deal with the spores. So they walk into the, they walk into the, uh, the, uh, arboretum, basically. All the spores are flying around. She says, uh, you're not going to need that phaser. It'll only piss him off. He says, think of it as a placebo for my skepticism. So they beam the telegrad into the uh, jungle of spores. And they decide that it is communicating with them. It's con- conversing with the mushrooms. Back to Dekuvma's ship. We find that Cole has taken it over by offering the crew food. And they are now mutinous towards poor Vok. Cole advances on Voke, calling for his death, and Lorelle steps into his way. And you think she's going to stand up for him, be his champion? But no, she hands Cole the processor and goes and eats a giant drumstick of some creature of some kind. They then send Voke to his death on the Shinzu. Dun dun dun! Commercial. Back from the commercial, it's a black alert. They transport the telegrad into the reaction tube. The creature has... A- the, uh, the, 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 the machine they found has connected with the cre- creature. And we see that the creature has access to all of the charted systems hiding inside of it. Burnham watches the telegrad as it appears to be in pain. And then They jump! seconds before we see that the shields over the uh koravan are not holding up they're dropping two percent one percent there are five not just two klingon cruisers here but as soon as boom the discovery arrives two are instantly blown out of the sky three more for come in for the attack but Lorca does nothing what is he doing why is he doing this he starts um he starts taking phaser hits from the klingons boom 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 the shields are falling 85%, 70%. 85%, 70%. Lorca is not firing any phasers. What is he doing? I mean, even if you have some sort of plan, firing the phasers might even take one of these think one of these other Klingon birds of praise out. Then the Klingons all converge on Discovery. Shields at 20%. Lorca has them where he wants them. He disappears, but not before leaving the Klingons a gift. They converge as these bombs explode all around him. Boom, 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 boom. The miners all come running out to see that the Klingons are gone. I mean, hopefully they came running out after a safe amount of time has passed. (laughs) No glory for Discovery, at least not now. Eventually, the uh, miners, I'm sure, will find out who it was who saved them. Everyone celebrates and looks happy, but not Burnham. She looks at the Ripper, who appears to be in pain. And I'm not sure about you, but it looked like the the machine had actually like gone into the telegrad Uh and that when it released from it, it looked like it had sort of like separated out of the skin. Prediction here, the health of the telegrad will play into the coming, coming story. This is why I think the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry is because of the telegrad. And even though right now, it's only a minor detail in the storyline. I think that later, either Burnham is going to free it right, or it's going to die and they're not going to be able to find another one. This, is, of course, is also going to be why Starfleet's not going to continue to use the spore drive, of course. Right.
0: I, I think it's probably both. Yeah. I, I, so you can see this total conflict that'll develop between Lorca and Burnham over the use yeah, of this
1: creature. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, you know, one of the so I think it's pretty clear that Lurk is an ENTJ, which means two things. One, it means that he's got extroverted thinking at the top of his stack, and that he's got his introverted feeling at the bottom of his stack. So his compassion for the animal could be zero, and his desire to win the war is so high. It's, it's all that exists for him. And what happened to this creature is irrelevant. After all, the butcher's knife cares not for the cries of the lamb. Whereas for Burnham, you have two things going on. One, uh, I think she's probably an INTJ, right? Which means her, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: so she's not dominated by judgment, decision-making and her thinking, her learning comes before her judgment thinking. And it also means that she's got this third function F. So she's got some feelings, some compassion, some commitments. And so we see her strong commitments in all the episodes, you know, whether it was to um, the values of the Vulcans or the values of Starfleet. It's very typical for an INTJ to kind of be either all in or all out when it comes to commitments right so when she's vulcan she's vulcan all the way uh-huh. and when she's starfleet she's starfleet all the way and i think the same thing is going on here her her third function f is being activated by this creature she's you know got some concern for it she's not so committed to you know Lorca's end goal you know she's going to be much more attuned to You know, all the different ways that this might be useful. I mean, she might be thinking, actually, the the highest use for this might not be the spore drive. It might be like beaming it onto Klingon ships. (laughs) You know, the Klingons all shoot at it, can't destroy it. It (laughs) eats all the Klingons. (laughs) And because it responds to aggression the way it does, right? Right. You know, the fact that they'd put it on a Klingon ship and the Klingons would, they'd aggress. That's what they do, right? It would eat them all, (laughs) crush them all. And then yeah. you, like, beam it back and feed it some spores. <laughs> you fight in a Klingon ship. You beam it on board the ship. <laughs> <laughs> it kills all the Klingons. You beam it back. You give it some spores. It might be a lot less stressful for the creature than
1: uh, than whatever they're doing with the spore drive. Right. So we cut to the Shinzu. Vok is standing there with a pad in his hand that has a picture of Burnham. And it's sort of reading off her uh, her history. And then he gets angry and he breaks it. My faith tells me this is not the end, he says. And then we see Te'Kuvma's ship zoom off to warp. And he screams it again. My faith tells me this is not the end. There's a tense moment where we think maybe this is the end. But then Lorel beams aboard. He snarls at her. It's very animal-like. And then attacks her. You have renounced me, he snarls in Klingon. To save you, she says. Or the only way to get the 24 houses to follow T'Kuvma's teaching is that you must win the war. She says, for you to, She says the way for you to do so is to meet the matriarchs and expose you to things that you never knew possible. But it comes at a cost. You must sacrifice everything. Burnham, back on the menagerie, has more spores in her hand which she drops for the telegrade who just sounds in bad shape. And I had the, uh, the closed captioning on and it even says growls weekly.
0: Growls whatly?
1: Weekly. Weekly. Yes. I'm sorry. She says to it. See, it's all leading up to this thing where it's going to be a big problem with the telegrade back in her quarters. She's lying there. Tilly enters and tells Burnham how everyone was thinking about how cool it was that Burnham had saved the miners. Another reputation to live down, she says. In the silence, the machine pings a couple more times. Tilly tries to make up something about what her mom used to tell her, but then immediately says, okay, no, no, that's a lie. I don't even really have anything, except to tell you that you should not be afraid. I just saw you take on the biggest, scariest, meanest, tame the biggest, meanest, scariest creature I've ever seen just proves that you are not afraid of anything. So Tilly leaves. And she leaves for two reasons. Number one, because Burnham might just want to open it. And two, that if she doesn't, she doesn't want to hear that thing ping all night long. (laughs) Burnham decides she's going to open it. Boom. It cracks open, and we watch Juju's last will and testament to her. She tells Burnham how proud she is of her. She tells her to take care of herself and those who were in her care. And we opened revealing that what she had left her was the telescope that we saw in episode one. Of course, my question now is, how did they even know to scavenge that? I mean, really, why did they not just leave that on the ship? How did they know they were supposed to take it? I don't even know. But that's the end of the episode. Credits. So we saw the trailer for uh, the next week. Apparently, uh, Lorca gets taken question mark scary and uh we also uh finally get to meet Mud dun 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 one last little cool piece of information i got off of memory alpha is this that being born in 2226 as michael burnham has this has revealed that she is 4 years older than Spock who was born in 2230 now that was revealed in star trek beyond so, again, we question, blah, blah, blah. But we can assume that the date would be the both for both Spocks. I guess since it's also three years before the Narada arrived. So that must mean that this is the, that's the true date. Which now is really interesting <clears throat> to know where Spock's at at this point. All right. Well, that's all I got for this episode, sir. How about you? Yeah, that's it right there. That's it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening in. As always, we've got our own website now. That's right, thebrotherstrickabout.com. Look for us there. We've also got a a, a Facebook page, so you can come in there and enjoy the fun that we're having over there as well. And uh, lastly, start looking for us on iTunes, because we're also going to be showing up there very shortly. So that's it. As always, this is me saying goodbye from Austin. Goodbye. And from Houston, say goodbye, Ken.
0: Live long and prosper.
1: And we'll see you all next week.